on the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at my th- at the th- well, the third part or the third hundred pages or so of Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain. So we're right in the middle of this story, and you know, I think. Um, well, actually, this 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 section. Uh, mostly we're still in Italy, so I think, yeah, for the most part we're in Italy uh, for, through these 100 pages. It's the last 200 pages or so in which Mark Twain's trip, the trip of the, of the, the, the Quaker City, uh, you know, they spend most of this, well, they they're go through Italy and then they go to the east. And I, I think I'm going to have a little bit more to say about the sections where they go to the east, when they go to Constantinople, when they go to uh, uh, Odessa, when they end up in the Holy Land, in Egypt, and these kinds of places. Because then we start getting into the narrative of, like, empire and and race and, like, the relationship between Americans and the West and the places of the world that were increasingly becoming colonized. So the story becomes something kind of different at that point. That it kind of digs into a different aspect of, of of America's place in the world. Up to this point, with a few exceptions, it's it's really the visit of the to the old world. Not not that West Asia is not part of the old world as well, or North Africa. It's it's not how most Americans kind of vision the old world. All right, there's a gap between Asia. It's it's like that. Uh, Holy Roman Emperor sitting on the gates of Vienna, turning to the east, saying, oh, that's Asia, right? Like everything to the east of Vienna is, is sort of Asia. It's it's a different realm. And there's, a, you see a kind of a change in Twain's approach to things, too. In the section where we're still kind of wandering Italy, and, and the, you know, it's, this book spends, a, you know, probably a third of its time just in Italy, Um exploring that and of course that's going to be of interest to readers back at home so there's probably a market reason for that um, but it's it's kind of laying in more on this theme of of the the reality and the perception of the past or how we experience the past when we see it physically in front of us there's that that artificiality that I've talked about in the previous episodes here so um, anyways, where, where we kind of start up. So this is going to be chapters 25 through 26 through, through 35. 26 through 35. And it's going to take us basically from Rome to the Vatican to Mount Vesuvius to Pompeii. Uh, and then they go to the Parthenon. There's like one chapter where they stop in Greece. There's just like one quick shop, stop in Greece where they go to the Parthenon. And then, they, then we get to Constantinople. And and kind of we 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 end this section at Sevastopol, but the vast majority of this. So so, you know, I'll kind of save most of my thoughts about what he has to say about the Ottoman Empire and Russia 
for the the next episode. Of course, there's that very famous moment where they meet the Russian czar, which ended up in American press at the time. You can actually see newspaper accounts of that that meeting. It's it's um, it's presented here comically, of course, as is the whole whole narrative. But there, as I I think there's a change. So I'm going to like kind of finish up my thoughts about what Mark Twain is really meditating on in the context of, of Italy here. And there's a really funny moment, some of the funniest moments in this book, which, as, as I said in the last episode, I don't find as funny or as engaging or as interesting as Roughing It. Roughing It, uh, which was a travelogue written later, but about events earlier in, his li- in earlier in his life, is a lot more playful and humorous and and. And, and funny. I, I just I just think it's a funnier tale, and maybe because it's rooted in American experience more than just kind of in this tourist experience. I just I just feel a disappointment throughout most of this narrative here about what they're experiencing. It's kind of like, oh, that's the Mona Lisa, <laughs> you know, that's the David. Like that's not what I expected. It was supposed to be actually interesting, and it's just like a piece of rock. Um, and I, you know, I've been knowing I've been talking about it a lot, but I think it's it's there in the text. It really is there all the time. Um, like he talks about tourism here, right, on opening of page twenty-six. What is it he writes that confers the noble's delight? What is it that swells a man's breast with pride above that which any other experience can bring to him? Discovery to know that you are walking where none others had walked that you're beholding what human eyes has not seen before, that you're bestowing a virgin atmosphere. To give birth to an idea, to discover a great thought, an intellectual nugget right under the dust of the field that many a brain plow had gone over before. To make a new planet, or to find a new planet, to invent a new hinge, to find a way to make the lightning carry your message. To be the first, that's the idea, to do something, to say something, see something before anybody else. These are all the things that confer a pleasure compared with which other pleasures are tame, commonplace, other ecstasies, cheap and trivial. So that's all pretty fine stuff. That's good enough. That's that fits in with kind of a frontier ethos, I suppose. So I dig it. But what does that have to do with this story or this this narrative of ex, of of a tourist uh, trip through Europe? Well, he gets to it. He says, "What is there in Rome to, for me to see that others have not seen before?" What is there for me to touch that others have not touched? What is there for me to feel, to learn, to hear, to know that shall thrill me before it pass to others? What can I discover? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. One charm of travel dies here. But if I were only a Roman, if added to my own, I could be gifted with modern Roman sloth, modern Roman superstition, and modern Roman boundlessness of ignorance, what bewildering worlds of unsuspect wonders I would discover, end quote. So there's a couple of things here. One is just that, yeah, just walking around Rome, I'm not going to get the fuel for it. I'm not going to be part of it. It's going to be separate from me. Like, I'm just going to be this outsider observing it, going to the places like that I'm supposed to go, checking the, the you know, the boxes of the places we must see, the Colosseum, whatever, the, the David the St. Peter's, whatever else happens to be in Rome. I guess the David's in Florence or whatever, but, you know, whatever we're supposed to see, we check the boxes for it. But he's kind of saying, 
there it seems the people that live there have a different experience so they experience the place they live in differently than the tourist so you're not even really experiencing the city as is experienced by the people that live there there's even a gap in that sense um And I think this is why we get these these comments where he's like, oh, that 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 place, I, I prefer like T Tahoe or, 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 you know, I think the Mississippi is a more interesting river or whatever. Mark Twain's doing that a lot. And I don't think it's just for his audience to aggrandize uh, the United States. I think he actually does feel that there's a like he just doesn't get it. He's not he's not in on the joke in a way of what this place is supposed to fully be. And again, I'm really sympathetic with Mark Twain about this because I'm, as I said several times already, I'm not the biggest fan of, of, of tourism. I just don't find myself enhanced by going to a place. And I know there's many people that out there that do, that do find something about the aura of a location. Um, I like to live in places. If I'm going to go somewhere, I want to live there for a while. Get to know the people. Get to know the city. Walk around a little bit. You know, like stroll on the streets, smoke some cigarettes out there, you know, hang out at the bars. Find out what's what it's like to live there. I, I think I'm more interested, in, I guess, in the people then than in the places and the and the relics. So, anyways, let's let's go through some of the main points here. So, um, I do think there's some of the funnier aspects of this of the book show up in this section dealing with like the tour guides and communication and people playing as the dumb American and all that. But deeper behind it is a concern about like things like how we remember tragedy. Right. I think this comes it came up a little bit before in other aspects, like with Abelard and Eloise maybe. But here he talks about it with the Coliseum. Which, in this kind of American mind, is just a place that Christians went and were, were sent to be fed to the lions. Of course, that was a small part of what the Colosseum really was about throughout Roman history. Uh, you know, but, you know, it's still, presented, it's still presented by Twain as kind of historical tragedy with tens of thousands of people being, being killed in the Colosseum. But there's like a gap between, given enough time, these things just become, the, the, they lose the tragedy, they lose the horror, right? And I think that's something I often worry about is like if, if given enough time, will some, some horrors closer to our own exper experiences and times also kind of get faded away and become just sort of the backdrop of history, just a, a couple lines in, in the narrative and something we can go visit. Um, and, and which will become a tourist trap. Um, hopefully not. Now I, now, I do think some of the funniest aspects of this book are in this chapter, especially in one chapter where we see... Um, it, it's really centering on tour guides and communications and how the tourists discuss things with the tour guides. And it's, it's hard to know whether Mark Twain is drawing this from life or actual experiences. I, I have to believe he's not. But he's just kind of playing up this idea of the dumb American or the dumb tourist with the, the tour guide who's struggling to communicate with these people in a language that maybe is not his first language. And, and the, the tourists 
making ridiculous, preposterous questions, right? Like, um, like questions like, you know, is Christopher Columbus, like this was something of Christopher Columbus. And then the tourist asked, like, is, is he dead? And the tour guy's like, of course he's dead. And then the, the tourist asked, like, what did he die from? And the, did he die smallpox? And, and then this, this back and forth about like these mundane questions. Um, but the, the question that's repeated, and, and Mark Twain's very good at repeating something and, and, and building up the comedy in the repetition of, of that, something that's ridiculous. When you read it one time, it's just sort of ridiculous, but when you read it three or four or five times, it, it, the, the, the comedy kind of builds up on it. But that is this line, like, is he dead? You know, referring to artists or whatever. And I, and I got to believe this is just playing up the idea of the stupid tourists. But I had a lot of fun with these, these sections. Uh, I think it's chapter 27 is probably the funniest in this whole book. But I guess, I guess the theme I really want to center on here uh, in the few minutes I want to talk to you about this section of Innocence Abroad is this question that sort of came up with the Colosseum, and that is how we experience tragedy. And no place does that come up more so than maybe in Pompeii. Um, now, Mark Twain has a lot of fun with the hike up Vesuvius, kind of emphasizing its its drudgery and its repetitiveness and, and the length of that of that trip. Uh, in a, you know, he writes it over several chapters and he intercuts it with like the ascent of Vesuvius continued, implying it's kind of a long and boring and tedious thing. But when they get to Pompeii itself, he throws away some jokes like, oh, these these people of Pompeii are very, very ashy or, you know, they, they seem to like to, to stand in one place and, and these kind of uh, jokes that, I don't know, how will they land for you? They're, they're not bad. They're, they, they are kind of humorous. But um, but when he gets to his main point here, he's talking about really how we look at this because these people we see in, in, in Pompeii, they may have been slaves. They may have been poor. They actually had lives, right? And he reminds us of this at the end, even after like kind of making fun of them a little bit. He writes, after browsing among the stately ruins of Rome, and that's the difference, right? The ruins of Rome are, are a little bit more sterile than those of Pompeii. Rome, Roman ruins are just like buildings. The, what you get in Pompeii are like bodies and lived-in houses and things that are closer to people's real, real, real lives. So he says, after browsing among the stately ruins of Rome, of, of Bai, of Pompeii, and glancing down at the long marble ranks of battered and nameless imperial heads that stretch down the corridors of the Vatican, one thing strikes me with a force it has never before. The unsubstantial, unlasting character of fame. Men lived long lives and in olden times and struggled feverishly through them, toiling like slaves in oratory and generalship or in literature, and then laid them down and died, happy in the possession of an enduring history, and the deathless name. Well, 20 little centuries flutter by, and what is left of these things? A crazy inscription on a block of stone, which snuffy antiquaries bother over and tangle up and make nothing out of but a bare name, which they spelt wrong. No history, no tradition, no poetry, nothing that can give it even a passing interest. What may be left of General Grant's name 40 centuries hence? This in the encyclopedia of AD 5868, possibly? Then, so I'm going to read what he, what he implies might be a future reading of Grant, but this is the same logic. It's like we misunderstand 
the lands we walk in, the history of the places we walk in because of this gap of time, right? It's like how early paleontologists used to put the dinosaurs together wrong and think like the, the, you know, like the protoceratops walked on two legs or whatever. That happened. And, you know, and of course, historians get stuff wrong all the time. You know, I know this. Like, it's like stuff that historians now say and provide evidence for contradict things that had been taken for, like, granted for, for years before this. I've been reading and looking at a lot of Qing history lately, and that's a great example of a field that's completely re been reworked, as has Soviet history been sort of totally reworked in recent decades. And, and we look at those things totally different than we, we used to. Um, that said, we're, we're probably still getting most of it wrong, right? So he, here's his guess of what might be written about General Grant sometime in the future. Quote, Uriah S. Orzi Grant, Grant, popular poet of ancient times in the Aztec province of the United States of British America. Some authors say he flourished around A.D. 742, but the learned Aha Fufu states that he was a contemporary of Sharkspear, the English poet, and flourished around A.D. 1328, some three centuries after the Trojan War, instead of before it. He wrote, Rock me to sleep, mother. Quote. Now, this is probably a bit of an exaggeration, in part because of printing. We, we do have probably a better idea of things two, three, four centuries ago because of printing and the preservation of sources. But I think his overall point is correct, that time does make us foolish about, about the past. So, yeah, I think, I think there's something to, to, to this point he's making. Um, and I think that's one reason that when we have enough space between now and tragedy, we, it gets downplayed. That's something that's often concerned me. It's like, you know, we, we discuss the Holocaust in a certain way because it seems close to us. It seems real to us. It seems like something that could maybe happen again. And maybe that's why we take it so seriously when we write about it. But we will at the same time, we'll write about, you know, 100,000 dead in some Mongol attack or half of China being killed in the middle of the 17th century in the Ming Tring transition. And we call that just, oh, the transition from one dynasty to another. When it was like half the, you know, half of the country was, was killed in some way. Or we look at the Little Ice Age in which global populations for a while may have declined for a third over the century. They kind of flattened out. Of course, but that's because of deep decreases and very slow increases over the course of that little ice age. It's, you know, we, it's, it's a century of war, 30 years of war, that Ming-Qing transition, rebellions, civil wars throughout the world. Tragedy across the board, and we don't, we're not anxious about it, even though our own time is very similar to that in you know, we're, we're dealing with some of the same crises of legitimacy, crisis of, of, of faith in our systems, climate change, economic stagnation. We're dealing with a very similar time as, as in the 17th century. But it's so distant from us, we don't experience those in the same way. I think I made my point. So anyways, um, so we've seen up to this point several examples 
many examples in this text of this kind of artificial commercialized experience of tourism whether and and the result of this is mark twain often feels quite kind of disappointed about what he sees it's kind of bland it's is this even be true of like the czar of russia where seeing the czar of russia is kind of like yeah I, I thought he looked nicer right but you know the last supper all faded and kind of ugly and people saying oh that's the most beautiful thing ever there's like a you know because that's what people are expected to say and the the feeling that we're just kind of going through the motions even in here in italy it's like we feel like we're just going through the motions like, yeah of course we have to see pompeii of course we have to climb mount, mount vesuvius and of course before we get go on to constantinople we have to stop at the parthenon and see that what does he say about the parthenon um i think it's basically the same idea like the parthenon didn't seem to impress him too much either so his 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 lack of being impressed is, I think, the experience of tourism. I really think we got to be more honest about this, and and stop. Maybe maybe we should stop traveling so much, or at least stop expecting much from it, right? It's like you got one week off from work, two weeks off from work, one week with the family. Why spend it touring Europe? Why do it? And and having these kind of contrived experiences that millions of other people have already had why, why do make something do something original with you, with your life i don't know maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm off base here but i i kind of feel that mark twain here is onto something uh now eventually he gets to uh constantinople where at least at this point we're in a world that's a little bit culturally different it's culturally distinct we're out of the kind of the christian world now we're kind of going to return to it with the holy land but it's be under muslim control at the time it's still under the control of the ottoman empire but stopping in um constantinople um, now mark twain doesn't really change his overall perspective here he talks about the hagia sophia and his disappointment with that which that is like a site that I, even I might be kind of impressed with if I, if I saw it based on pictures. But Mark Twain's saying, eh, it's not that good. <laughs> he talks about dervishes. Another, you know, he, these are things that people, his readers would have known about or read about or heard about. And he's kind of saying it, it's like not all that interesting when you actually see it face to face. Um, and when he gets to a chapter, chapter 34, about society in Constantinople, he, um, drop my book here. He has more interesting things to say about the dogs of of the city than he does of of the people. So, anyways, I do think the narrative kind of takes on a different tone when we get to the east, uh, especially when we start to see the impact of empire. And as people kind of observing this more as a historical document, um, I don't know if there's that much more to say about Mark Twain's overall perspective on tourism and this trip as, as, a, as a whole, but the nature of, of a changing relationship between the East and the West, between these kind of Asian land empires and the West. This is happening at the time, right? Like if you were to look at books about China at the time, tourists and travelers who go to China, they're reflecting on the same kind of thing. They're reflecting on a transformation in the relationship between 
the people of of China, the powers of China, the government, and the West through imperialism and through empire, right? The, the Ottoman Empire is in decline. The Qing Empire was in decline at this time. At, at a moment when Europe is rising and becoming more and more of a power in the world. And I think all of that is going to shape the narrative in, in particularly interesting ways. So with that, I'm rather interested and excited to, to talk about that a little bit more in the next episode where I'll cover the part four of Innocence Abroad. Of course, that book doesn't have parts, but, you know, looking at 100 pages in the time, this is our fourth part. Uh, and, it, and it covers uh, Constantinople. I'll say a little bit more about that. Odessa, the travels to Russia and the, seeing the Russian jar and then the return to the Holy Land. And we'll look at that in the in, in that episode in the in the sub subsequent one which will close up our thoughts about innocence abroad so anyways uh thanks for listening i will see you next time i just can't wait to get on the road again the life i love is making music with my friends